You're listening to The Homeschool Dropout. I'm your host, Mike Roberts. Let's talk about bridging the gap between homeschool and the professional world. Okay, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The Homeschool Dropout. This is the first time that we are bringing on a previous guest, our old friend, Larissa Carrick, who I homeschooled with. If you want to know more about Larissa's journey and her path, I loved our first conversation. It is in episode two. It's called Choosing to Homeschool. Go back there. You can learn about Larissa and our time homeschooling together. We talk about scholar class and her time in getting her degree in English and then deciding eventually to homeschool her own kids. And so, Larissa, it's really good to have you back. It's nice to be back, Mike. I'm really, really surprised to be back, honestly. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I was talking to my husband like, Mike wants me to have another conversation with me. And he was excited for me. But I was like, I don't know why. (laughs) I'm not doing much. So, I mean, I love our conversations. But I was like, I'm not doing much in the world (laughs) other than homeschooling my children. I'm not sure exactly what I have to contribute to this conversation. But my husband was like, you know what? Homeschool is your thing. You know, you got this. I am excited to be back. It's always fun to have a conversation with you. Uh, of course. Yeah. And he- here's the thing. We're old friends. You're a loyal supporter. You've texted me about the show. I love your thoughts. And honestly, I've enjoyed all the conversations with my guests. But when I have someone that I've known and that we can talk about a lot, you and I can talk about a lot. And so yeah. it just kind of relaxes it a little bit for me. And I think it makes it more fun. And I think I I may have threatened you when we recorded last time. I may have told you I might bring you back on. Oh yeah, so, I think you did. I think, I think you did. I that did. Yeah, and so. I just put it out of my mind like, ha ha. <laughs> yeah. So sure thing. <laughs> any other guests, if you're listening, I do follow up on those, <laughs> those idle threats. So I'm very curious though. Last time we spoke, the first time we recorded together, I know your oldest son, Wesley, had decided to go back to school. And so you'd put him in third grade, I think. I might have the grade wrong, but I'm curious how that's going. We are in March now. So you're a good amount through the year. How has his experience been? Yeah, he is in third grade and so far so good. He is really, really loving being with peers. Loving, I mean, I knew that was the whole appeal for him in the first place was being around other kids and he's doing well in everything. He's doing well academically and socially and it's been fun for him. I am planning on bringing him back to homeschool next year despite all that. He's doing well. He's doing well, but I am having just that nagging feeling that there is more I can offer him at home. And there hasn't been a day when he has been at school that I haven't ached for him to be home with us doing all the homeschool things that we that I'm doing with my younger children. But he misses homeschool. He he talks about it. He always says, I wish there was some way I could do homeschool and school. And I'm like, you know what? We can figure that out. There is a way we can do that because he's missing like the home rhythms. He's missing what we get to learn and the freedom. And so he's conflicted as well. He really loves being with all the kids, but I think the rhythm of homeschool is something that he is really missing. What a relatable experience. In my episode with my mom, which was probably two or three weeks ago, in my mind's eye, in my memories, I thought that they had put me in third grade because they wanted to make friends and like socialize. But then she shared that I had actually solicited it and I wanted to join. And so they put me in. And very similar to your son, I loved it. I made friends. I still talk to some of those people. And when 
I came home for fourth grade, I don't remember feeling upset or angry. It just felt like, okay, that was like the next step. So are you nervous about bringing him home? Have you talked to him about it? Yeah, we've talked about it. He, he wants to do both. Like he wants to be able to go to school and be with friends, but he also wants to engage in everything that we're learning at home. And no, I'm totally nervous. I am so nervous <laughs> about it. I know I can do the homeschool thing. I'm not nervous about homeschooling. I'm, I, I'm nervous about is I don't want him to resent the experience at all. I need him to buy into it. So we shall see. I know that I am the parent and that what I say goes and I have perspective, but I really need him to feel like he has a hand in his own education and how this kind of unfolds for him. So right now it's really just about demonstrating all the positives of homeschool and really what we can offer him at home that he just cannot get at school. And if that's not enough, that's okay. That's not, if that's not enough for him to choose homeschool, that's okay. He has many a year to figure out how he wants his education to be formed. And so we're just going to work together. We're going to work through it. And my hope is that homeschool is his choice. And that is my preference, but I'm going to work with him. I've never been the type to, as far as homeschool, I don't want to be the mother who is do or die because it is so individual. Like I can see in my daughter that homeschool is going to be the long haul with her, with Wesley, my son. However, I think it'll be a little eclectic. So we shall see. Very cool. I can hear your, in your voice and in your tone, I can hear like the hopes that you have for Wesley mm-hmm. and, like, and like your desires that are just having to like face the realities of him as a person and his own needs and his own agency as well. And I know I've shared this in other episodes. I am not an absolutist with homeschool. I'm definitely an advocate. I am biased. I think there's so much there. And something you said in the first episode, uh, our first episode together is, it's really stuck with me that homeschool is a privilege. It's a special thing that families get to do, but it's not an absolute, right? It's not like something that has to happen. I definitely see it as a privilege and that is how we view it in our home as well. And so it's a privilege that they get to choose whether or not they engage with that. However, this book, you made me reread this book, Mike. <laughs> and after rereading this book, I'm like, oh, what am I doing? I Why know. is my son in school? <laughs> what am I doing? Okay. Um, All right. So great segue. Yeah. I brought <laughs> Larissa back on because just through having these conversations and I had heard about this book for a long time, I read Dumbing Us Down by John Terragato. And through reading it, I've just been so shocked and stunned And I knew, Rissa, that you had read it. And so I thought, what a good opportunity to have a whole episode. Let's talk about the book. Let's go over the different concepts and principles. I definitely want readers to investigate it. I will link it in my show notes page so you can go find it on Amazon or whatever bookstore you want. I do try and go to brick and mortar when I can, but sometimes Amazon's just nice. Let's introduce... John Taylor Gatto real quick. I just want to give a quick bio on him. He was a school teacher, a public school teacher for 30 years in New York City. So he taught all over the city in really rough neighborhoods and wealthier neighborhoods. He had a lot of exposure to the system and different dynamics and socioeconomic groups. But before that, he worked in advertising. He was a copywriter. He's originally from Pennsylvania. And he just felt a really strong call to get into education. And it was a little bit devastating to his employer when he decided to leave advertising and go into education. And based on his own words, he had a really rough go. He had a really rough time of it. He 
retired in the 90s and then began writing about his experience. So Dumbing Us Down is really a collection of many of the speeches he gave when he would win awards. The state of New York would give awards to teachers. He started receiving a lot of these awards. And in the award ceremony, he began <laughs> criticizing the system that was awarding him. Kind of a, a brazen move, if you ask me. I think understanding the author helps inform the conversation because there's a lot of legitimacy in his opinion. His perspectives are very well informed having been through the system and been a very successful instructor and teacher. I don't know, anything else you want to uh, supplement there? First, I don't know if I missed anything you thought. No, we I think so. He, yeah, he was a teacher for 30 years, retired in the 90s. And yeah, it's really interesting because he was obviously a very good teacher. His students really loved him. He was a good teacher. He apparently despise the system. So he must have been a good teacher because he rebelled a little bit, but it's a very interesting book. And anyone concerned with education for their children in particular at all should definitely read it. He can be eccentric, but no, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to his opinions, especially having spent so much time in the system and promoting the system as a teacher. Exactly. I think to contextualize our whole conversation, one quote that I do like of his is he decided, he says he no longer wished to hurt kids in order to make a living. And so he stepped away from the system. A little bit heavy. He was very bold in what he wrote and was unapologetic, which I love. Yeah. We always love those people, right? Yeah. Those are our people. (laughs) Those are (laughs) our people. Unafraid to go against the grain. I really like that. Let's look at the first section. I'm going to list the seven lessons that he outlines, and then let's just dig into some of them that you find most potent. He says the seven lessons that he taught in his time as a public school teacher were first, confusion. He taught class position. He taught indifference to the world, emotional dependency. He taught his students intellectual dependency, provisional self-esteem, which I find really interesting. And then the last one, the seventh one is that one can't hide and there's like constant surveillance. So it's an overarching view of the first section. Oh man, all of those headers are just like I know. scary. Just right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just go with the first one because I mean, he just dives right into this. Yeah. Uh, he teaches his students confusion. I'll just quote from the book when he says, the first lesson I teach is confusion. Everything I teach is out of context. I teach the unrelating of everything. And that immediately stood out to me because right now I'm going through all of Charlotte Mason's books, all of her works or volumes. And something she says in that is education is the science of relations, which is the complete opposite of what he's saying here, right? That I teach the unrelating of everything, that all knowledge that you learn in school is not relating to your life, not relating to other knowledge. And here is Charlotte Mason saying education is the science of relations, that true education is how does knowledge relate to other knowledge? How does truth relate to other truths? And how does that relate into our lives? It stood out to me because I'm like, oh man, yeah. I remember being very confused how like in when I was in public school, how does this relate to me? What importance does this really play in real life? I think that's a question that a lot of students have. And those are questions that students themselves need to search for. You can't have a teacher tell you exactly how all knowledge is going to relate to life or to other knowledge, but students aren't even taught how to do that, how to relate knowledge to themselves. And so let's just start with that. 
the confusion. We could spend the whole episode on this, honestly, but the information is very siloed. There's different rooms for different classes and they don't really relate to each other. They do like organically they do, but the instruction is not interrelated when nothing's connected. How many students have said, why, when am I ever going to use algebra? Uh, you know it's like it's not relevant it is it should be but it's not taught in a relevant way yes that's the thing it is all so relevant to life but we do not know how to make those connections because everything is so siloed the author even mentions this in the book that you're in a history class and then as soon as the bell rings you have to be done with history and you have to move on to the next (laughs) thing and you and no work is worth finishing or spending time on because you have something else that is required of you. Like externally defined saying, whatever you are thinking about in history is not as important as this schedule. You need to move on. And oh, I, that just like freaks me out. That was not homeschool for me. No. It was like, how long do you want to bury yourself? I cannot tell you my obsession with Egypt. I probably spent a whole year reading everything I could on Egypt. I played video games. I played like, I was consumed by the Egyptian world. Was I progressing in other areas? Probably not, but I loved Egypt and I was allowed to just love Egypt for a while. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's stayed with you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it really has. Let's look at the second one where he talks about class position. I'm going to read a little bit. My job with children is to make them like being locked together with children who bear numbers like their own, or at least to endure it like good sports. If I do my job well, the kids can't even imagine themselves somewhere else because I've shown them how to envy and fear the better classes and how to have contempt for the dumb classes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) How does he like articulate it? So yeah, like the audacity. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. But here's the thing. So I'll give an example here. My son in his school class, they are assigned numbers and his is number two. Wait. Okay. And like real numbers, real numbers. They are assigned numbers. I mean, this is in a class of almost 30 children in a school of, oh, I don't even know how many, there's just too many kids in the school. So he has a number and ever since school started, like that is his number, wherever he goes, he sees himself as number two. I am number two. And he even received like during basketball season, he, he made sure to choose the number two Jersey because that is his number. And Every time we run into an incident where he's referring to himself as that number, I'm just like, oh, what have I done? Why are you in a school where you're a number? But yeah, so it happens. It's like, it's very real. To have that stratification at such a young age and also the age segregation that you talked about that I, I never really thought about where it's not really normal to have kids segregated by age, not interacting with the elderly and the very young and kids a few grades above and a few grades below, that that's a normal organic interaction in the world. But we've put everyone in these age segregated boxes and there's a lot of stratification that happens. I don't know. I just don't like it. I don't like it either. And Gato mentions that as well later in the book. He does mention how we segregate old people and children and how they don't play their proper roles in society and how detrimental that is to our communities, right? Because there is no past and there's no future when we're locking them away and we're in a perpetual state of presence. How do we grow if we are not engaging with these central groups of our community? He talks about both ends. We've locked up the children and we've locked up the elderly. 
And so you just, you don't see the beginning from the end. There's no, again, connectivity in life. It's confusing. I really liked his section on emotional dependency. He talks about rights don't exist inside a school. You don't even have the right for free speech because everything's determined by the authority. Your whole acceptance and behavior patterns and whether emotions that you show are appropriate or not are determined by an authority figure. And I thought about that a little bit because that exists in family. There is an authority figure. However, there's a more, for lack of a better term, I feel like that's a natural, like a, it, it occurs naturally in the world, that authority figure, whereas this is external, it's a stranger. And it shifts all the time too. He even says here in rights may be granted or withheld by any authority without appeal because rights <laughs> do not exist inside a school, not even the right of free speech, unless school authorities say so. <laughs> so right. That's the thing too, it's always shifting. And he goes into talking about how individuality is constantly trying to emerge. The kids will, they'll fight back, they'll push back, they'll be very expressive in clothing or behavior. It's their own individuality trying to assert itself. And he goes on to say that individuality is a contradiction of class theory. If you're in a system that promotes stratification, hierarchies, then individuals don't really work in that. And they need you to fit nicely in your row. Yeah, absolutely. Individuals do not work in that. No. They upset the whole system. And you can see that being disciplined. There are definitely behaviors that are not okay, but some of them like using the restroom. I don't know. Do we really need intense authority over using the restroom? Oh my goodness, Mike. <laughs> Here's another. Okay. Okay. You're, okay Let this me have book it. is just so upsetting to me <laughs> Okay. because that was one of the major issues with my son going to school for the first month was the regulations around bathroom breaks. I don't think it's like this in every school, but in, in his school, if you take a bathroom break during class time, then you lose two minutes of recess time. You're kidding. No, no. And I, yeah, this is a homeschool mom. Like when my son is telling me this, I'm furious. It may not seem like a big deal to most, but I'm, I just couldn't believe it. I was like about, I was ready to call the principal and just be like, this is absurd. Like you are teaching children to prioritize just the wrong priorities, right? They can't even have the right to the bathroom for fear of losing out on their right to playtime. They lose recess time if they need to use the restroom during class time. There have been a few times where they've lost five minutes of recess time. And that might've been disciplinary or not. Crazy. Crazy, well, right? And to have your recreation as a kid become so transactional. Mm -hmm. and you have to start wagering, how, what do I value more? Going to the restroom or having two minutes of recess time? And that just doesn't feel like an evaluation that a kid should have to make. No, absolutely not. If a child needs to use the restroom, please go use the restroom. My goodness. Yeah, I love how Gata says, sometimes the kids ask to use the restroom. And I know they don't have to go, but they want some privacy. So I'll let them go. And I'm just like, yeah, let the kid go. They've had enough. They may not need to use the restroom and he knows that. But what he does know is that they need a private moment. Right. But saying I need a private moment is not valued. And so oh, no. he talks about how kids are taught to deceive. If I can trick the teacher, then I can get what I want. Whereas if you need a moment, take a moment. Let's move on to the next one because the emotional or the intellectual dependency is interesting as well because we are teaching children that they always need an authority to, to tell them basically how to live their lives or what they should trust 
not themselves, but there always is an authority who knows more than them, who is better trained than them, who can give you the meanings. Right here, he says, we must wait for other people better trained than ourselves to make the meanings of our lives. It's just... So it's sad. insane. Yeah, it's <laughs> insane. Yeah. And the waiting for the expert to make the important choices and that these far off ivory tower people determine what is valuable for the child, what needs to be taught for the child. And then the kids who do well, who can identify that value system are rewarded. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this constant reinforcement of figure out who the experts are. Don't think, just figure out who they are, reflect their values and then you'll be rewarded for that. And I see adults doing that. The pandering, the kissing up, the trying to like climb ladders. And I just like, truly, I had one friend express to me that, well, school trains you for the world better than homeschool will. And I just thought, well, school trains you to be a very good worker. If that's your goal, you will respond to authority. You'll do what you're told. You'll complete the task. That's like insanely valuable in a factory. And they absolutely do a good job of that. And if that is your goal, perfect. But at the end of the day, I make the important choice. I decide what's valuable for me. I determine the meaning of my life. And I think that more so than not, in my as I've moved into adulthood, I've had to continually lean into that because I have felt alone in a lot of my opinions and thoughts. And I'm just like, yeah, I know there's people with a lot of credentials that disagree with me. And I do know how to think. I do know how to weigh opinions. And at the end of the day, I just, I value my thoughts, even if they end up being wrong, over a deferral to some unknown person with a couple letters behind their name. Yes. And as you should, that is absolutely (laughs) what you should be doing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a special privilege in thinking and being wrong. Oh, yes. Because it's yours. You get to own it. Yeah. Yeah. It's special. Okay. The provisional self-esteem. I loved this. Yes. I I want to hear your opinions on this. Yeah, yeah. He just talked about we're not creating self-confident spirits and how we're rewarding very specific behavior, but not creative behavior, not individual behavior. And that children, it is appropriate to like constantly evaluate and judge them. And then their self-confidence, their self-esteem is provisional. Only if you do certain things, can you feel good? Can you admire yourself? Can you enjoy your work? And like kids are, they just start developing opinions about themselves. And I just, those who excel, even Larissa, even those that excel, I think have a very dependent self-esteem. Have you seen like on the internet, on the Instagrams, all these like perfectionist kids talking about how they were really good at school and they got into their adulthood and like lost all control of who they were? Oh, that's an age old story. I've seen it in people in my life and the constant need for that, that validation we all need validation in some capacity, but sure. the, marks, the marks, the marks, the grading, right? The, I was a straight A student my whole, my whole school life. Okay. But what, I mean, that's great. You're a hard worker, but like, I know of a person in particular who that was her thing, like her whole thing growing up was that she got perfect marks and gets into adulthood does not know how to function without these marks, right? Never trusting herself in what she's doing because she's not getting the proper feedback. Once you get beyond school, that's not the feedback you're getting anymore. In your careers, you're getting whether or not you're doing well in your job and things like that, but you're not getting specific marks to know exactly where you stand in society. I have a a really good friend. He just finished med school in Seattle 
and I haven't seen him a ton. He started chemical engineering, as did I, and I just had more time lately. And so I've been up there to see him a bit more and hang out. And I told him once, I was like, hey, I just, I don't know what has gone on in the last four years, but I feel like <laughs> this is kind of a hard feedback from a friend. But I was like, I just feel like you've lost your sense of self. Like you've been so lost. He's been in school for a decade now and he's really sharp, so sharp, like intelligent, brilliant. Like he's going to do great work in his field. But I was just like, I don't know. I just like, I feel like you do not know who you are without school and med school and like receiving these like high acclaims and interviews at the best schools and matching with the best programs. I was like, those are all really cool things, but have you lost your sense of who you are in all of this? It was an uncomfortable conversation, but maybe I was out of line, but I just, I couldn't I'm sure help he appreciated feeling, it. Yeah. I was just like, don't lose yourself on the way. I just felt like. Well, when you spend 20 years being told what you're valued by other people, by the yeah. experts, mm-hmm. it's, it has got to be so painful trying to figure that out for yourself. And we're not teaching children that at an early age, we are teaching them that we give you your value based on your performance. Right. And that happens for their whole upbringing. And yeah, you hear about the quarter life crisis now, yeah. not just the midlife. <laughs> right, right. We're having our quarter life crisis. And that's what it is. We're figuring out who we are without authorities giving us our value. Or those reward systems that give you that adrenaline rush, but you need to go take another test in order to feel good and ace it. Gato points out that this evaluation system we have, we're communicating that people need to be told what they're worth against this metric. So let's go to the last one, the one can't hide. This concept of kids are always watched, students are always watched, there's constant surveillance, there's no privacy, privacy is not valued, it is not encouraged. Students are encouraged to like tattle on each other if they're like stealing a private moment for themselves. I have a lot of friends who do not like being alone with their thoughts. Oh, yeah. And I just feel like growing up, I mean, (laughs) maybe I'm a unique case. I struggled having like building friendships when I was younger. So I was with my thoughts all the time, a lot. I've told people one of my favorite hobbies now is thinking, thinking through it and sitting with my thoughts and how else can I think about this? But people are afraid of their thoughts. I found in my adulthood. I have found that as well. But people are afraid of their thoughts. They're afraid of being alone. I don't know if that's need, the need of constant distraction, which everyone has that in their hands now. Yeah, right, <laughs> it's just yeah. a constant distraction. Uh-huh. But yeah, being alone with your thoughts. And my daughter, she is five. And so at this age, we're really just cultivating the habit of attention and the habit of obedience. Those are things that we're working to cultivate at this young age, because that will help her in her pursuits and education. And five-year-olds have a hard time paying attention sometimes. And five-year-olds are often saying they're bored. She comes into the room just today. She had just finished an activity and comes in and says, mom, what should I do? And I say, oh, that's not a question you ask me. Hmm. (laughs) I don't ask that question in this house because it's not anyone's responsibility, but your own. And I told her, so we got into a discussion about boredom and what it feels like and what it actually is. And I told her, guess what, honey, I am never bored. And she was like (laughs) astounded. Like, how is that even possible? (laughs) And explaining to her that it's a habit. But anyways, I don't think that is a habit that 
many kids are able to cultivate anymore because they are in school for the six hours or more a day and everything is laid out for them. All of their agenda is perfectly laid out for them. They have to perform to a certain degree. And so, yeah, it would be scary to be on your own and think, oh, well, what do I do with myself in this moment of solitude? I go running a lot and I was actually on a run today. And for two reasons, I don't run with headphones. The first is, and this is maybe TMI for the listeners, I just sweat a lot when I work out. I've ruined several pairs of headphones and it's just not like financially feasible anymore. You're one uh, of those people who sweat while you I, work out. That's crazy. I, no, it's out of control, <laughs> honestly. Like you don't understand. So there's that. But also I've had some of my best breakthroughs and my, my most important moments on trails, on the road, like working through things that I like are resting on my mind. And so I was telling a friend once, I was like, yeah, I just like like my thoughts when I run. She feels like that's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Actually, that sounds terrifying. It's so, oh, man. kind of a joke, but I just, I really do. I like thinking. I like, it is a truly private and unique human experience. It is. I, I had someone say that your thoughts are the final frontier. It is the only private space left. Yes. Yes. And, and it's so sacred. Yeah. No one, out of all the technology out there, all the things that we've been able to do, we still cannot read each other's thoughts. And I just think that's really cool. Like at the end of the day, what's in my head is purely mine. It only belongs to you. Yeah. But you have had the space and opportunity to cultivate that in your life. So that is very unique, I would say, for the majority of people our age. I would say that's unique because you had the space to cultivate that, whereas the majority of our peers have not had that space. And now we are, I mean, are you a millennial? Yeah, I don't like claiming it, but right, okay. I mean, no know. one does. No one. I'm like definitely that. not Gen Z. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. No one wants to claim that either. Uh-huh. But, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, but I think that is very apparent in our generation. I've just found it to be more rare than I would have liked, as I've met more people that they are out there. I've met peers that have been public schooled, and they're excellent and brilliant people. But by and large, people that I have met don't like to be with their thoughts. I don't know, maybe I'm a loner. No, it's so funny because hearing, I mean, okay, this is just a tangent. I don't want to go off course too much. No, you're right. Mm-hmm. But just listening, because I have listened to every single episode. They have been very helpful to me and very encouraging. But I'm getting to learn more about you in a way that I didn't recognize when we were young. And we actually spent a lot of time together. But, you know, you keep saying that you were, shy and a loner. <laughs> I mean, that was not my perception of you at yeah. all. I feel like you were just very easy to engage with. And maybe that's because we had similar backgrounds. And so we could relate on levels that we couldn't with some of our other peers. I think all that time alone, all that time that you spent with your own thoughts has really just allowed you to grow into the person that you are and be able to reach people in a very unique way. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Definitely. When I tell people that they're often surprised, but I think one aspect of being like very lonely when I was young is I'm really curious what is going on for other people. And so even in, in bringing on different guests, I'm like, I could spend hours with you trying to figure out what's in your head. Like what is going on in there? Do you know? Most people don't even know. It's just like understanding yourself 
it's such a lifetime experience because we're changing and the world is changing. How am I experiencing this? And so I think I was also a very self-aware kid. I was very like, I don't know, in tune with my environment. And yeah, and you were because you had the space and opportunity to be so. Like, I truly believe that that is a a possibility for everyone, but we aren't provided the space for that. I mean, in this book as well, Gato says that genius is in every person. He says, I've found that genius is far more common than we believe, but they don't have the opportunity to express the genius or even to tap into the genius because it's repressed by the system that they're forced into. I found that to be very true, that everyone can teach you something very special if you create space and just let them talk. There, there is something very special about a person talking. Maybe not everyone. Some people are just talkers. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I should qualify that. But no, I really appreciate your thoughts there. And it is nice bringing on guests that we have a lot of history together. Yeah. And I think last time I was like, <laughs> I told you, I think we're lifers. And I really do think we are. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll always have tabs on you and your family in one way or another. I don't want to keep you too long. We have barely scratched the surface of this book. I knew this would happen. I knew it. I mean, there's there's too much to get into. But these seven lessons, that is enough to give you a taste. And there's there's so much more. There's so much to go into. These seven lessons was enough for me to kick myself for putting my kid back in school. I guess I'll give this warning to listeners. Reading this, even being homeschooled, I was uncomfortable. And sometimes I was like, really? That is how it is, isn't it? That is the model. That's the way things are working. And so it's spooky. What I love about Gato and his writing is it's plain. It's straightforward. He does not embellish. There's not ornamentals. It's very easy to understand. So Highly recommend the book. I will link to it somewhere in the show notes page, one way or another. I'm really glad you found some time to come on, Larissa. I, I feel like we could do every week. I know. <laughs> Honestly, that, it'd be really that's, easy. That's the trouble we get into is these conversations get too long. Do you mind if we just go through the lessons one more time? Just list them Please. one more yeah, time yeah. for the listeners. Okay. So the seven lessons of public school are confusion, class position, indifference, emotional dependency, intellectual dependency, provisional self-esteem, and one can't hide. And I love how he ends this chapter. It just adds a little comedy to it because he says, school is a 12-year jail sentence where bad habits are the only curriculum truly learned. I teach school and win awards doing it. I should know. Yeah, he does he not is. care. No, know? he's yeah. retired at this point. So he's like, right. well, let's just he's like, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And even parents, listeners can you can try and avoid these things in homeschool because you can bring all this home. You can Absolutely. do all this at home. And so you can evaluate yourself, evaluate your life, evaluate the system against these kind of metrics and make changes or keep going or just reflect in general. I've, I have loved his work. Yeah, it's been, I mean, this is the only book that I've read of his and now yeah, I've gotten, same. it's been, this is, I read it five years ago when I started homeschooling and again, and now I'm like, oh, well, there's more I need to read. Definitely need to pick up more of his books. Yeah, yeah. he definitely has more out there. I think there's one called Lessons of Mass Instruction. I really Mm -hmm. want to read that one. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Larissa. We'll stay in touch and maybe bring you on again. (laughs) Don't make any promise. Okay. All right. I'm not sure how much more I can actually contribute to the conversation. I'll find out. I'll dig something up. Always good to talk to you, Mike. Yeah. All right. Appreciate it. 
Hey, listeners, if you enjoy the homeschool dropout, the best way to support the show and increase its value to you and other homeschoolers is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So head there now, and we'll see you next week.